I'll call our meeting to order here. Uh, we'll begin with prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you that we can gather together under your means of grace, learn about your word. We do pray, Lord, as we look into the doctrine of predestination, that we would be those who are grateful for your sovereign calling, uh, that we would be also committed to the universal proclamation, knowing that you use it for the sake of your elect. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dear ones, last time we had left off talking about the antecedent to justification, which is going to be our focus for a while. That is, of course, the doctrine of predestination. And remember, I talked about how predestination is God before the foundation of the world, sovereignly choosing those that he's going to bestow his grace upon, enabling them to believe upon Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And he does this according to his good pleasure. There's nothing in a human being that compels him to choose them for salvation. It's purely his mercy and his grace. Now, we contrasted that with the doctrine of reprobation. This is where God chooses to pass over, giving his effectual grace upon unregenerate sinners. And again, there's nothing that they do to deserve that other than being sinners. Okay, so there's nothing that commends the elect over the reprobate. The big thing that I wanted you to see in distinction between the predestined and the reprobate is the idea that the predestined, God is hands-on. God has to enable unregenerate sinners to believe, whereas when it comes to the reprobate, all he has to do is step away and let them be who they are. And one of the texts we looked up to see that last week was James 1, 13 through 14, where he makes it very clear that when someone is tempted, that is to sin, and of course unbelief is the greatest form of sin, no one can claim that God is enticing them to sin because we're led away by our own loss. Okay? So now what I want to do is I want to address two questions, and we're going to do it in a preliminary way because as soon as you talk about predestination, the question of fairness comes up. So before I move on into the total depravity, I want to talk about this issue of fairness. I want to have you turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 21. Romans 9, verses 10 through 21. Now, as we turn there, we're going to be answering two questions from this text. One is whose will is responsible, according to what Paul writes, for salvation? Is it the will of man or is it the will of God? And I think you'll see very compelling evidence that it's God's will alone. Second question we're going to be asking of this text is how does Paul answer the question about fairness? Why is it fair that God chooses to pour his sovereign grace upon some to enable them to believe and not others. And Paul will give us an answer. So two questions. Whose will is responsible for salvation? And why is it fair? Let's begin in verse 10, Romans chapter 9. Now, let me just give you the background. Why in Romans 9 is Paul dealing with the doctrine of election? Well, if you recall in Romans 8, Paul had given the promise that all of us as believers are heading for glory. That's how he concludes Romans chapter 8. But the natural question that would arise in the minds of the reader 
is if believers in Jesus Christ are guaranteed this glory, how can that be true, this guarantee, if in fact the promises of Israel are null and void? After all, the majority of Israel remained in unbelief. So as Paul proceeds into Romans chapter 9, what he shows is that not all Israel was part of the elect. And that's his transition into the doctrine of election, which really carries forward all the way into Romans chapter 11, where Paul will show the reason why national ethnic Israel still has promises for her is because of the election of the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this doctrine of election is absolutely essential for our theology regarding salvation, but also our understanding of eschatology, the future of Israel, the nature of Israel and the church. All of that is tied in to predestination. One thing that I've said before, I'll say it again. Sadly, many Arminians today, they rightly have Israel, but they have no doctrine of election. The Reformed have the doctrine of election, but no Israel. And what we're saying here at Gospel of Grace is let's get it together because election is true. Israel's promises stand forever. So let's read the text. That's where this fits in. Romans chapter 9, verse 10. Paul says, and not only this, but there was Rebecca also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac... Now, let me just stop there for a moment at the end of verse 11. This is very important to consider. Paul is going to be using the example of Jacob and Esau. Now, why is that such a powerful illustration for the doctrine of election? Because they came from the same family. They had everything in common, the same upbringing, the same socioeconomic status. Um, R.C. Sproul famously said that these two were womb mates, They were mates in the womb, right? They had everything in common. So no one can say, well, the reason Jacob succeeded is he came from this better family and he had a better background and better bringing up. No, no, no. Paul is saying these two were twins. All right? So think about the power of that, using them as an example. So continuing in verse 11, he says, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So let's stop there in verse 11. Remember the doctrine of election according to the Arminians is the idea that God in his foreknowledge looks down the corridors of time And he sees who is going to choose him by faith. Therefore, on that basis, God elects them for salvation. So in the Arminian conception, we call it the foreknowledge view of election. They believe that the ultimate reason why God chooses some is because of the choice and the will of the human being. But notice here, Paul says in verse 11, they were not yet born and they had done nothing good or bad. If there was ever a place in all of scripture that Paul could have said that election was based on God looking down the corridors of time and seeing who would choose him by faith, here was Paul's opportunity. But he doesn't say that, does he? In fact, 
He says it wasn't based on anything that they did. Why? Well, notice the purpose statement at the end of verse 11. Notice the so that. Anytime you see a so that, it's either a purpose clause or a result clause. And oftentimes, because God is sovereign, his purposes are result clauses as well. So it's both. So here was the purpose. It's so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. So it's God's choice that brought this about. It was nothing to do with either Jacob or Esau. In fact, Paul reiterates it where he says, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now, stop there for a moment. Remember last week we talked about two different types of calling. There's a universal call where everyone is invited to salvation. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Remember, Peter's sermon at Pentecost was based off of that Joel 2.31, where it says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then the point of his sermon was to prove that Jesus is the name of the Lord that you should call on. Okay, so that's the universal call. But there is an effectual calling, and that's the calling of those that God has predestined for salvation. Certainly, the effectual calling is in Paul's mind at the end of verse 11. It's not based salvation on the will of man, but on him who calls. So let's answer the question then, whose will is ultimately responsible for salvation? Well, it's certainly not man's, it's God's. Now, let's look at another passage. I've got a parallel passage. We're going to stop there for just a moment. And I want Brian to read, I had him read this text here, John 1, 11 through 13. And you can turn your Bibles there, Brian. Give everybody a minute just to turn their Bibles to John 1, verses 11 through 13. I just want you to see that this is a concept that's not just here in Romans 9, but it's elsewhere as well. Yeah, we'll let people turn to John 1, verses 11 through 13. Yeah, and go ahead and read, Brian. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice they were born, they became children of God, not based on the will of man, but it's the will of God. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying. So it's not the will of man that makes salvation possible. It's the will of God. Now, later as we transition into total depravity, the reason I'm going to, this is true, the reason why salvation is not based on the will of man is because human beings in their depravity have a will that is dead in transgression. It will never choose the things of God left to its own devices. In fact, Paul says that earlier in Romans 8, 8, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. By the way, according to Hebrews eleven six, how do you please God? Remember, it says it's impossible to please God without what? Without faith. Put that together with Romans 8, 8 once. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If the only way you can please God is to come to faith, those who are in the flesh can't come to faith, can they? Okay, that's an implication. Okay, now let's get back to our Romans text. Let's go back to verse 12 of Romans 9. And we'll keep reading and we'll talk about the fairness issue. Romans 9, 12. 
Notice Paul continues. He says, it was said of her, this is Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. Now, this is a citation from Genesis 25. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, we'll talk more about this text later, and I'll answer this hated versus loved issue. But for the sake of time, let's keep reading. Verse 14, Paul says, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Now, let's stop there. If the Arminians are correct that God chooses no one based solely on his good pleasure according to his will, and that it's ultimately dependent upon human beings, why is Paul answering this possible objection? Is there injustice with God? See, what lends nicely to him having to answer that question is precisely because he's talking about God choosing some and not others. Jacob I loved, salvation, Esau I hated, reprobation. So Paul senses what the reader is going to say, and now he wants to deal with the answer, or to answer the issue of fairness. Now, continuing on in verse 15, he gives another example. He says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Verse 17, here comes Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Now let's stop there at verse 17. What did God have to do to harden Pharaoh's heart? He just let Pharaoh be Pharaoh, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. Bob said Pharaoh was good at being hardened. That's exactly right. That's why, because he's a wretched sinner left in the flesh. So that's all God has to do. He's reprobate. He's hands off. Now, for us, the elect, he has to be hands on. Why? Because we're wretched sinners too. All right? So continuing on, verse 19, he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Now, again, Paul is answering the question about fairness. And what lends to that question is precisely the idea that Paul is saying that God chooses some to give compassion and mercy upon and not others. If Paul was not saying that, if Paul was saying, no, God chooses some because they first choose him, he wouldn't have to answer that question. Are you with me? So that proves that you and I are on the right footing, saying, no, this is up to God. Now, isn't it interesting when he asks the question, this is what's called a rhetorical question. Now, what is a rhetorical question? It demands an answer. In other words, it's not you can just fill in any old answer you want. It demands the answer. When he asks the question, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? The obvious answer is no one can resist his will. Now, as I say that, some of us may be sitting in our seats thinking, wait a minute, people resist God's will all the time. He says, thou shall not murder, and they murder. He says, thou shall not steal, and they steal. But obviously, that's not the will that Paul is talking about. Remember, the Bible often uses will in two different senses. One is in the morally revealed sense. Thou shall not murder. 
uh, we're commanded to repent and believe upon Christ. If you don't, you're acting in an immoral way. You're disobeying the gospel. Okay, so people, yes, they do resist God's moral revealed will, but here Paul must be talking about what's called the decreative will. And the decreative will of God is that will where God will bring about that which he has predestined. So, for example, uh, Bob showed us this in Acts where, yes, the crucifixion of Christ was a sinful act of men. They They violated God's moral will, but they also fulfill his decretive will because it was according to the foreknowledge and the predestined plan of God. Okay, so certainly I think Paul here is talking about the decreative will. The term that's used here is a form of bulamai. It just means God's will, his desire. So the, the question then is rightly answered. No one can ultimately refute God's decreative will. Now think about the power of that. If no one can resist God's decreative will, then we have an issue where, wait, God chooses some for salvation and not others. And that's why Paul is raising it here. If no one can resist God's decretive will, he can do what he wants. All right? Now, does anybody have any comments or questions thus far? Uh, Jen's got something back there. Uh, Carly's coming. I like this quote from John MacArthur. It says... Um, is God unfair in choosing to, in not choosing to save everyone? Fair would send everyone to hell. You don't want fair. You want mercy. Amen. Amen. Well said, John MacArthur. Thank you, Jen. That's well said. Exactly. So let's just stop there and talk about that idea of fairness. God, in his fairness, like you said, could have judged all of us. Okay, so certainly I don't think fairness is the issue, although we certainly are wrestling with it. But what I would claim is that God doesn't handle Jacob and Esau equally, but he is fair. So in other words, when Esau rejects God, why does he do so? Because God made him do it? Or is it because of his own sin? It's his own sin. God isn't making Esau reject God. Remember our James 1, 13 through 14? Let no one say when they're being tempted that they're being tempted by God. For God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but people are led away by what? Their own lusts and their own desires. So Esau's sin, just as everyone else's sin, is on him. So wouldn't it be fair if God took a rebel and sent him to hell? Well, certainly that would be fair. Are you with me? So yes, God doesn't handle them equally, but he's not being unfair. Now listen to how Paul answers the question in verse 20. He says, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? So notice the distinction. We'll stop there. Paul is distinguishing between the creation, mankind, someone who's created, and the creator. Okay, so the, the created being has no right to tell the creator that you can't do what you've done. And he continues in verse 21, 
He says, or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? So stop there. Isn't it interesting that at the end of the day, Paul's answer about fairness is God can do what he wants. Why? Well, because he's God. And as we continue, we'll read more of this text later. I'm going to stop here. But we're going to get into the idea that God has designed the reprobate for his glory so that he's glorified by those that he pours his wrath upon, but he's also glorified by those that he pours his mercy upon. Yes, Dan. I'm just wondering if you could address the the hyper-Calvinist position where, okay, you have, let's just say, Jacob and Esau, for example. God had mercy on Jacob, but he didn't on Esau. Um, So in the hyper-Calvinism, I I believe that that's like, what chance does a person have? So both people were created sinners. You know, I mean, they came into the world sinners. One, God had grace, you know, his mercy on. The other, he didn't. Yes. And that was a choice that God made. So... Yes. What chance did that? What chance did Esau have? He, you know, yeah. that's the hyper Calvinism. I think that maybe. Yeah. So the distinction between hyper Calvinism and what Calvin taught yeah. is hyper Calvinism sees no distinction in the the handling of the elect and the reprobate. Hmm. So remember, I mentioned that with predestination, God's hands on with the elect. Right. He has to create faith in dead sinners, hmm. but He's hands off with the reprobate. Okay, he just lets them be who they are. Whose fault is the sin nature of man? It's our own. Right. We are born sinners, not because of what God did, but because of Adam. Mm-hmm. And we act on that. We act and we actualize the sin and we become evildoers ourselves. So with the reprobate, God's hands off. But in hyper-Calvinism, God's hands on in both. So... Yes, he gives grace to the elect, but he also is hardening an otherwise, uh, a, a person who would otherwise come to faith, perhaps. So he's hands-on in hardening and in regeneration. That's a big distinction. And that's why, by the way, they don't really care about the universal call. The universal call is not a, a big issue. Yes, Bob. Yeah. Well, the key issue that will distinguish between hyper-Calvinism and what I believe is just the five solas and the doctrines of grace. Yeah, yeah. It's two things. The universal call is essential. Absolutely. And in, there were cases in early America where in some of the Calvinists or Reformers, especially wherever they came from, yeah where they didn't actually preach the gospel, but people would sit around and wait right. to see if signs of election show up. Right. And often you would also see the characterized very harsh treatment of people in the church because, uh, sadly, in, in many cases, there were infant baptism. So then they would baptize infants and... You've talked about that. Yeah. Because they claim that replaces circumcision. So then everybody's basically forced into the church. Hmm. And then they'd wait to see if signs of election show up. And if they don't think that the sign of election showed up, they can do a lot of very harsh things to the people 
who don't show up with those signs. Mm. And it led to really abusive treatment of a lot of people, in my opinion. I've, wow. I've actually seen that. Whereas, in, in that's, that's one issue, is the universal call. See, we can only preach to humans on the scene of history as humans are. Amen. Because we don't, what did Paul say there? Who's known the mind of God, who's yeah. been his counselor? And this is what Luther, in his book, The Bondage of the Will, ultimately was telling Erasmus. Yeah. Your, your position almost requires that you know the secret will of God, which you can't. Right. Okay, what secret belongs to God, including whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life? Okay, so that's what I said last week is mental acts. What's in the mind of humans doesn't determine a whole lot. We don't know what God knows. But we do know that God's commanded us to preach the gospel yeah. and to call sinners to repentance. Yeah. And so on the scene of history, I believe what Eric is teaching, which is just what it says. Yeah, amen. I ran into this myself in the 80s yeah. when I was just teaching this for what it said because I had no other choice because it was my duty to teach Romans. And if I tried to twist Romans to make it say what it doesn't say, I'd be failing God. So I made a decision to teach it for what it says, no matter how many people left the church, and a lot did. They would rather hear what they want to hear that sounds good than to have a pastor who accurately teaches the Word of God for what it says. Always with the caveat, feel free to show me how my reading is wrong. Yeah, amen, amen. Just go through here and show me why I'm not getting this right. Right. Which they never even tried. Nobody tried. Yes. They just would go to a philosophy or human emotion. Right. Doesn't seem right. We don't like it. Well, Paul knows it doesn't seem right. That's why he says, who are you, O man, to reply to God? Yes. Paul knows that humans don't like it. And it's ironic that the ones who are angry about the doctrine of election are the elect. Yeah. Or at least they think they are. Yeah, right. Okay? And the people that aren't Christian are very happy in their state. Okay, they're not saying, it's unfair that I'm not in church with all these Christians. Hmm. You, you don't hear that. They're, they're very glad they're not here hmm. because they think it's abhorrent, the idea of being religious, Right. And when a sinner's can, well, look at Paul. Was he saying, gee, I wish I was one of those Christians? Mm. He wanted them dead. Right. But when you're converted, you don't want to be anywhere else. Mm. So what's going on in our mind doesn't determine what's in the mind of God. Mm. He knows all things. We do not. Yeah. All right. So the one issue is the universal call. If you hear in the church, the pastors and teachers presenting Christ, the gospel, the universal mm. call, repent and believe in Christ. We preach because we're humans preaching to other humans to motivate people to do God's revealed will. Amen. Repent and believe the gospel. We don't sit around and wait and see who the elect are. Hmm. We actively preach and call people to repentance. So that's number one. The second thing is what's called equal ultimacy. All right? Hyper-Calvinism believes that allowing people to stay in their reprobate condition and showing mercy to some have equal status 
or what's called equal ultimacy. And then you have God delighting (coughs) to reprobate. Yes. But that goes against the revealed will of God. Yeah, amen. Because God says, I do not delight in the death of anyone who dies, therefore repent and live. Amen. And Jesus reveals the same thing in the garden. Okay? Jesus uh, would weep Mm. over the sorry state of Israel. Mm. And Jesus would say, how often, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you under my wings as as a hen would gather the chicks, but you would not. These things have been hidden, divine passive. Mm-hmm. There's a purpose in God allowing Israel to be hardened, and it was to bring in the Gentiles. But it didn't diminish Jesus' love, compassion, drops of blood, tears, and everything in a pleading to Israel. Hyper-Calvinism has equal ultimacy, so you, you don't have any of that. Right. They, they're, they're lacking a desire to see the salvation to go to everyone. And because we don't have the mind of God according to his secret, his secret will, and we don't know anybody, anybody in our family, anybody in a church, anybody on the street, anybody in a different religion, anybody sitting in the Roman Catholic Church hmm. hearing all this nonsense, anybody may be somebody who repents. And we don't know who that is. And so we show love, compassion, prayers, and encouragement to all. Until somebody decides they're reprobate, and I've had that, where somebody was a pastor who's now an atheist said, I'm so happy now that I've renounced Christ and Christianity. My life is better. My family's better. My business is better. I couldn't ask for anything more. I'm done with it. Please just tell your... This was a guy from church who was... Uh, telling him about the danger of apostasy, he said, that's okay, just let me go. I'm very happy this way. Yeah. All right, there's yeah. your Judas. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So if we don't know the mind of God, then we need to show the compassion that Jesus showed, and we need to plead with people to repent. Amen. We need to pray for all people, and we need to be loving and compassionate because if we claim to know the mind of God when we don't know it, Right. And the secret will of God when it's actually, in fact, secret. Right. we got to let that go. But equal ultimacy says God is just delights just as much in damning as he does in saving. Yeah, amen. And Eric and I, we reject that. We reject that, exactly. Absolutely. Right. And, we'll, and we'll show that through the rest of Romans 9 when we come, right. we're and come we back sh- to this Right, and you text. see it in Ezekiel. Yeah, exactly. Why die? Yeah, that's Repent right. And live. Amen. Yeah, well said. Thank you, Bob. What's interesting is one of the reasons why we got into this whole discussion, Are You a Calvinist, is there was a book written by a man named Bob Kirkland. And in it, my big beef with him is this has been put out by many of our discernment ministries. And when it was put out, he takes on Calvin precisely where Calvin was correct, which is the doctrine of election. But all of the doctrines where I think Calvin misses it, he didn't touch those. What is very interesting, if you look at Bob Kirkland's book, he has a scripture index in it. 
and Romans 9 is conspicuously absent. So how can you take on the issue of the doctrine of election and not deal with the most relevant text in all of Scripture? You see, so that's one thing that I've seen from many Arminians. I heard one Arminian, in fact, Jesse Kramitz, she remembers the name, but it was online. His response to what Paul says in Romans 9 was this. This is a scholar, Ph.D., quote, whatever Paul means, he can't mean that, unquote. Really? When that's your rebuttal, whatever Paul means, it can't mean what he's saying. You probably don't have a very good case. So here's the question. Tell me what it does say then. See, Bob and I are on the hook to tell you week after week what it actually does say. I can't stand to be in an ivory tower somewhere. I don't have that option to say, well, you know, I'm not going to deal with it. Whatever it says, it can't mean that. We have to deal week after week with the text and tell you this is what it says. So, I'm sorry, Tom, go ahead. I understand universal as being non-selective. It's, it's universal. Yeah. You can see the universal of man towards man because we do not have the mind of God. God does have the mind of God. Does God have a universal call? Absolutely. So you're talking about his universal call to all men. Yes. Absolutely. That's what we are saying. So there's two different types of calling, and both are true. One is the universal call where God commands all people to repent. In fact, Jesus does in Mark 1.15. In the beginning of his ministry, he commands all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. Um, you see the invitation, all who call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Paul reiterates that in uh, Romans 10. We see it in Peter's sermon in, at Pentecost, etc. So yes, God declares all men, commands them to repent and believe. But here's the problem, Tom, and this is what we're going to come to. Because of man's depravity, no man can do what God commands. It's as if, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, how many in this room would say, that's a snap, I'm going to start today. We say, well, I, I can't do that. Well, that's precisely one of the points, is to drive us to Christ. So just as I can't be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So left our own devices, this universal call would go out and no one would respond. So that's where the effectual call comes in, where God enables dead sinners to believe. So that's why I'm going to transition and to show you, indeed, we are dead sinners. And we have to look at the biblical data that proves that. So I'm sorry, Tom, you have more uh, questions then? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. I, did that help answer? Oh, let me, I'm sorry. Maybe I can. Let me yeah, try I'm to sorry. help. Let Bob help. Say, Tom, <laughs> uh, when this comes up, the issue is between the revealed will and the secret will. Hmm. There are providential will and moral will. It's another way of saying it. But what is clear in the Bible is that God in his commanding can do nothing less than give commands that are in keeping with his moral nature. So when God says thou shalt not covet, that's his moral will. When God says thou shalt not steal, that's his revealed moral will. When God says thou shalt be perfect, that's his moral will. The universal call is also God's moral will. Jesus said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's his revealed 
moral will that we come to Jesus. So the moral will is uh, applied universally. God doesn't say thou shalt not steal unless you're not one of the elect. Because we can't know that anyhow. Hmm. So the moral will is universally revealed in the Bible and anybody can see what it is. Okay? Now, I, I'm, I'm going to agree with Luther. Now, Rasmus was just hammering away at Luther on this. And Luther says um, that God's law is revealed to all despite human ability in order to drive them to their knees and show them their need for the gospel. And you see that in Romans 7. So the, the universal law of God that says, thou shalt not covet, Paul said, well, then I died, because he couldn't stop coveting. So when you had come to the end of yourself, I can't do everything God revealed that needs to be done, and you despair of it, then Luther sees that as a good thing. Yeah. And in your hopeless condition, you realize you are weary and heavy laden, and you can't do it yourself, and you don't need a little help. You need a total transformation, Amen. and that you're living in darkness and you need light. So God uses what is revealed. Now, God cannot reveal anything less than his moral will because he's a moral God. That's, that's how I understand it. Amen. Let me, let me throw this question out there, and I think it'll help. Let's ask the question from the Bible, from what God has revealed, as Bob is talking about. Let's ask the question, from what God has revealed, if sinners were left to their own devices, no aid from God, would we be saved by coming to faith, or would we perish by remaining, remaining in unbelief? We would perish. Now, here's the two different answers. Oh, <laughs> okay. So here's the two. Here's the two different answers that, that people will come to. Arminians will say, "No, not everyone will perish, because some will choose upon the Lord Jesus Christ." The position from the Scriptures, I believe, as Calvin and the Reformed would say, is, "Yes, everyone would perish, because no one is able to come to faith." So here's, where, here's what I think is critical, and this is one thing that I, bothers me. When you read a systematic theology text, they will talk about predestination, they will talk about reprobation, but it's in the section of soteriology, rightly, but it should be right next to the section about the sin nature of man. If you don't understand the inability of man, you'll never understand the doctrine of election. If you still think that there's something within you, even a half of a percent of ability so that you will trust upon Jesus when you have the, the universal call go out to you. If you believe that, you'll believe that, yes, left to your own devices, human beings can choose upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But what we're going to show is that humanity is so depraved by what God has revealed that no human being could ever do that. Yes, uh, Ed. Oh, I was just going to say it's the time factor. It took me over 60 years to, to know what's up. <laughs> and uh, well, praise God that you're there, Ed. In Romans nine, uh, verse seventeen, for the Scripture says to Pharaoh, "For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power to you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth." 
Yes. What could be more throughout the whole Earth than two, 2,000 years later and halfway across the planet, That's which right. is where we are? Right. And we're talking about it, and we're still learning from it. Amen. Pharaoh hated God's firstborn. Yep. Pharaoh was allowed to remain in his own sinful heart. If you hate God's firstborn, you hate God. He was a God-hater, and so was all the unregenerate. God allowed him to remain in that spot, in that position, in that status, so that he could demonstrate forever that he's the God who can crush Egypt. He's the God who can take the power, has the power to take a people who had nothing going for them in captivity, the most powerful army in the world, and bring them out, as God says, on eagles' wings. He can take the greatest military on the planet and deluge them in the Red Sea and crush them. And you're absolutely right. It's to, to proclaim his greatness so that all the nations may know that he is the Lord. Amen. So absolutely, yes. That was his decree, Will. Yes, Nancy. I just wanted to go on one more verse from what Ed brought to our attention. Yeah. Because I love this verse. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Exactly. So... Nancy, thank you for going back to that. When he shows mercy, hands-on, allowing people to believe. When he hardens, what does he do? Hands-off. So the hardening then isn't God making a soft heart hard. It's allowing a hard heart to remain in that state. So whose fault is the hard heart? God didn't make it that way. He just allowed them to remain as they are. This is what Paul's type. I'm sorry? Yeah, Garden of Eden. Now, what's interesting there is Adam and Eve before the fall had the ability to either obey or not obey. That's lost after the fall. After the fall, then we only have the ability to disobey. After regeneration, we have the ability to obey or not obey. After glorification, we have the ability to only obey. So that's how it goes throughout salvific history. Okay, so again, before the fall, you could obey or not obey. After the fall, only disobey. After regeneration, obey or disobey. After glorification, you will only obey. That's how God has ordained it. Absolutely. Now, let's start answering this question, just how sinful are we? Are we so sinful that we don't have the ability to even believe? Let's look at a preliminary text, and then I'm going to show you a grid here in just a moment on the different views. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 19, Verses 23 through 26. And if someone wouldn't mind reading that uh, for me, just to save what voice I have. Matthew 19, verses 23 through 26. Uh, There we go. Jen, thank you for being a reader for me. As you're turning your Bibles to Matthew 19, remember here is the story of the rich young ruler. Jesus asked him to sell all that he has but he won't do it. Now, what enters in then after that is this discussion about ability. Okay, so go ahead and read, Jen, about this, the inability of man here. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And Jesus, and, and looking at them, Jesus said to them, 
With people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Amen. So notice the declaration by Jesus is that when it comes to salvation, if it's left to man, it's impossible. But with God, even salvation of the wretched is possible. Now, one thing that I've heard Arminians do with that text, notice Jesus says it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. That's an expression of something that's impossible. Think about a huge camel going through the eye of a needle as we know it. Some would try to claim that the eye of a needle was a small part of a gate in an ancient Near Eastern city. That's not true. That's not true. That's not what Jesus' point is. In fact, the proof of that is he's talking about that which is impossible. He's talking about a huge camel going through the eye of a needle. So a human being coming to salvation, coming to faith in Christ, is as impossible as it is for a huge camel to be threaded through the small eye of a little needle. And that's why the disciples were so astonished. Well, then who can be saved? Well, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are impossible. Now, what I'm going to show you is the different views in history over this idea of just how depraved humans are because of the sin of Adam. If we don't understand our sin nature, the doctrine of election will never make any sense. If you don't understand that it's, you're so sinful that you will never come to faith, election and reprobation and all these doctrines will not make sense. So let me begin with this chart here. I want to talk about, on this chart, first of all, a man named Pelagius. There's a view regarding human depravity called the Pelagian view. And it stems from a monk, he lived in the 4th century, named Pelagius, He was an ascetic. He loved asceticism and trying to please God through his good works. Now, in his day, Pelagius was an enemy of Augustine theologically. Augustine had a famous saying, and it was actually a prayer. He said, uh, the prayer was, O Lord, command us what thou will, I think is how he said it, command what you will, but enable us to do that which you command. Well, notice the, the second part of his prayer was enable us to do that which you command. That was Augustine's prayer. That incensed Pelagius. Why? Because he said, well, how could God ever command us to do something that we don't have the ability to do? See, Pelagius believed in human ability. So as you look on the chart, what Pelagius said is, is that when it comes to guilt from Adam, we don't have any. We don't have any accrued guilt from Adam. When Adam sinned, that was his problem, and we as human beings are not affected by that in any way. In fact, notice the next heading, moral corruption. Are you and I in any way morally corrupt because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden? Pelagius said no. There's no inherited or imputed moral corruption. Now, when it comes to the extent of moral corruption, because there is none, he says, Pelagius, that we are spiritually alive. We can either choose to do that which is pleasing to God and believe in the gospel, or we can do that which is displeasing, which is not to believe. But the choice resides within man. That's the Pelagian view. Now, so heretical was Pelagian's view that even the Roman Catholic Church at one time condemned them. 
I'll show you later that they end up re- renouncing that and going back to Pelagianism and their controversy with what's called the Jansenists. So I'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But that's how heretical Pelagius was. When the Roman Catholic Church labels you a heretic, you're really a heretic, okay? Okay, now let's talk about another man named Jacob Arminius. This is where we get the Arminian position. Now, before I talk about Jacob Arminius, there are many different flavors of Arminians. There's Wesley Arminians. There are those who followed Jacob Arminius, which would be called the Remonstrants. So they all have a different view uh, a little bit on what's called prevenient grace and some of these things. But the basic idea is this. Human beings still, even though they're weakened, through God's prevenient grace, have the ability to do that which is pleasing to him. So let me talk about Jacob Arminius. Jacob Arminius was actually a student under uh, Theodore Beza in Geneva. Theodore Beza was connected to Calvin. So in this uh, city called Leiden, it was a city in the Netherlands, Jacob Arminius becomes a professor, and he starts reacting against Calvinism, okay? In particular, where he really falls down is on the doctrine of irresistible grace. In Calvinism... When God regenerates, his grace is irresistible. Why? Because in Romans 9.17, didn't Paul ask, or I'm sorry, 9.19, Paul asked the question, who can resist his will? And ultimately, Paul is saying, at the end of the day, when it comes to God's decree of will, no one can resist it. What Arminius claimed is that his decree of will through irresistible grace it's not irresistible. It can be resisted. Okay? So let me give you a quote, and this is from Jacob Arminius. What Jacob Arminius believed is that, yes, human beings are sinful to the point where they cannot come to faith, but God gives every single human being prevenient grace. Prevenient just seems, simply means first grace. And that first grace then enables every single person to believe or not believe. So ultimately, why you believe or don't believe is left to your own volition. Listen to what he said. This is Jacob Arminius in his own words. He said, quote, That man has not saving grace of himself, nor of the energy of his free will, inasmuch as he, in the state of apostasy and sin, can of and by himself neither think, will, nor do anything that is truly good, such as saving faith eminently is, but that it is needful that he be born again of God on Christ through his Holy Spirit and renewed in understanding, inclination, or will, and all his powers in order that he may rightly understand, think, will, and effect what is truly good. Stop there. Jacob Arminius believed that you had to be regenerated and be given this what's called prevenient grace in order to come to saving faith. Now, here's the difference, though. For Jacob Arminius, he believed that God gave this prevenient grace universally to all people. He gives it to all people. And so, therefore, the reason why some believe is because they exercise their free will. And the reason why others don't believe is because they exercise their free will. So salvation was ultimately still up to free will. In fact, notice on the grid here, do you know that when it came to original guilt, are we guilty because of what Adam and Eve did? 
Jacob Arminius said no. We're actually not guilty. Adam's guilty for his sin. You're guilty for your own. But notice how he differed from Pelagius. We do have moral corruption. So much so that we need this prevenient grace. However, because the prevenient grace is given to all men, therefore, whether you're saved is based on whether you believe or you choose not to believe. Now, let me show you a passage that will refute this idea of prevenient grace. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 13. This is a passage that Bob does a wonderful job in explaining in in his book against Rick Warren, who distorts this passage in Matthew 13 and the nature of parables. Turn your Bibles to Matthew. Let's actually start in 13.10. 13.10. Now, why am I having you turn to this? Here's why. If Jacob Arminius is correct... The provenient grace, the ability to believe, is given to every person. It has to be universally given. So if I can show you passages where clearly it is not universally given, but it's only given to some, Jacob Arminius falls. Do you see what I'm saying? So you you have to prove through Scripture that this provenient grace, the ability to believe and to understand the things of the kingdom is given to every person. I'm going to show you a passage where clearly that's not the case. Here in Matthew 13, Jesus is speaking in parables. And believe it or not, parables are actually given to the crowds because of their hardness of heart. Why? They're so hard of heart, if Jesus came out and said, look, I'm the Messiah, believe on me, or perish. They're so hardened that they wouldn't tolerate it for a moment. So he has to speak to them in parables, which is in one sense a sense of hardening, but another sense it's a sense of mercy so that they don't just outright try to crucify him right away. So what's interesting is parables don't make what Jesus says easier to understand. It makes it more difficult. That was Bob's contention with a man named Rick Warren. Rick Warren said, well, we have to learn as preachers to speak in parables and stories because Jesus used that so everyone could understand what he was saying. That's the opposite of what Jesus said. In fact, notice when he's speaking in parables, he would pull the disciples aside and say, hey, guys, this is what it means. Well, the disciples start catching wind of this and saying, hey, Jesus, why do you tell them in parables? <coughs> Excuse me. But to us, he tells us plainly. Listen, Matthew thirteen ten. It says, then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Verse 11, it says, And he answered, To you it has been given, that the verb there, didomi, is literally granted. To you it has been granted or given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Stop there. Of Jacob, Arminius was right. The ability to believe was given provenient grace to all men. Jesus saying, no, no, to you it was given, but not to them. Jesus says the same thing in John chapter 10. Only the sheep hear his voice. He says, you did not believe because you are not of my what? Of my sheep. So right there, this refutes Arminianism. Again, if Jacob Arminius was right, Jesus would have to say, well, everyone's been given the ability to believe. Everyone's been given the understanding of the knowledge of the kingdom of God. He doesn't say that. To you it's been granted, not to them. Are you with me? 
So Jacob Arminius does not have a leg to stand on. Let me see if I can finish this last one. Semi-Pelagianism. What's semi-Pelagianism? It comes from a man named John Cassian, 5th century Syrian living in France. Now listen to what John Cassian said. Cassius said this, he said, Divine grace is indispensable for salvation, but it does not necessarily need to precede a free human choice because despite the weakness of human volition, the will takes the initiative towards God. So John Cassian, again, yes, he believes that you're guilty from Adam. Yes, he believes there's moral corruption imputed to you, but the extent of that corruption is that you're only weakened spiritually. You can still choose to believe on your own volition. Now, what's interesting is I want to give you a quote from R.C. Sproul. Listen to how messed up the Catholic Church. This is kind of a quick aside. Sproul said this. He said, quote, The Catholic Church once condemned Pelagianism, the Council of Orange in 529, reaffirmed semi-Pelagianism at the Council of Trent, 1545, then approves of Pelagianism once again while condemning the Jansenists in the Jansenist controversy in the 17th century. Now, who are the Jansenists? The Jansenists were Roman Catholics who came to faith and became Calvinists, and they were living in France. And they started teaching the doctrines of predestination, etc., etc. How did the Roman Catholics go after them? Going back to Pelagianism, the idea that you have ability to believe in and of your own doing. So I just want you to realize that if you're going to be a Pelagian or semi-Pelagian, you have a lot in keeping with the Roman Catholic Church. But that's not what the Reformers believe, and it's not what the Bible teaches. Isn't it interesting that when you look at the Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, and Pelagius heresies, all of them either believe that spiritually you're still alive or that you're merely weakened. What I'm going to do next week is I'm going to distinguish that between these other views. And I want you to see that everything below the red line Notice when it says the extent of our moral corruption, you're dead. And if you're a dead sinner, remember Bob taught us that Ephesians 2.1, we were dead in our transgressions. If you're a dead sinner, then what can you do spiritually? Nothing. It's not talking about physical death. It's that you're a dead sinner spiritually. You cannot believe. So I'm going to show you is that's what the Bible teaches. And I'm going to show you verse after verse after verse that teaches that. If it's true that we're all dead sinners and never could come to faith, well, then salvation has to be only what? Of God. If you want to understand the doctrine of election, understand the doctrine of the depravity of man. If you don't understand the depravity of man, you will never, ever understand the doctrine of election. Because once I got that, that I was dead, I realized, think of it this way. Think of the logic. Well, I'll do this next time. Is it possible if you're spiritually dead, if all people are spiritually dead, is it possible for any of them to be saved in and of themselves? No. Is it true that some are saved? Yes. Well, it must be of God. That's the logic, and I knew that the election had to be true. Brothers and sisters, this is where we have to go to understand the doctrine of election. It's the depravity of man. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you've revealed to us accurately through your word our desperate condition, not just that we were drowning and flailing off of the Titanic, but that we were dead and that you are a God who breathed the breath of life in us and enable us to live. We pray, Heavenly Father, this would become 
acutely known by every single one of us that we are dead sinners, completely reliant upon your sovereign grace to live. We pray that you would do that through us and for us in the next weeks. I also pray for Bob and this wonderful passage in Ephesians today. I pray that you'd bless him. I pray that you'd open our ears to hear what Paul says through the epistle to the Ephesians. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.